You're listening to Outside the Chamber, and I'm your host, Eleanor Sturko, the member of BC's Legislative Assembly for Surrey South, here in beautiful Surrey, British Columbia. There are a ton of challenges we're facing in BC today, from the unbelievably high cost of living to the current healthcare crisis and beyond. British Columbians have a lot to talk about. That's why my team and I have decided to create a podcast that goes beyond the legislative chamber and has real discussions about the issues facing our province. All right, and welcome to the show. Today, I am really lucky to have an incredible British Columbian, a very accomplished person on our show. It is Patricia Warwick. Patricia served as the CEO of ISS, that's the Immigrant Services Society of BC for 24 years. And during her time at ISS, ISS at BC became a recognized global leader in the immigrant services sector, going from two to 14 offices and $21 million in budget expansions. She retired a couple of years ago, but listen to this, she, I don't know how you ever found time to work, Patricia. She volunteers with Track, which provides important housing advice, volunteers on the board of the Asian Heritage Month Society, Correctional Services of Canada advisory committees, and also Canada's Volunteer Awards. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know what? So we, I'm going to confess that I didn't actually know a lot about the Immigrant Services Society until you recently were awarded the Order of British Columbia. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And so, I mean, being from Surrey, uh, you know, and we have, I would say this is one of the most inclusive and certainly diverse communities that I have ever lived and worked in. And I'm tremendously proud of that. We have the largest refugee population in British Columbia. We have the largest immigrant population with immigrants coming from outside of um, North America. It's awesome, but so, I mean, we must have kept you busy over your 24 years. Tell me a bit about the work that you did um, with ISS. Sure. Um, so just to your point, though, I think that the Fusion Festival really shows that up so beautifully. It does. You see the representation of what's in the community. And, and I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, too, am really proud of, of living in an area that has such a diverse and inclusive population. I think that makes us so much richer and stronger. So my, my work, when I started at uh, ISS BC, it was very tiny. There was basically two offices. And in fact, we could put all the staff, uh, th their names on the, the back of the annual general report. It was that small. Um, and, and over the years, what we, one of the things that we looked at, and I had a wonderful, wonderful staff. Um, this is not something you do on your own, that's for sure. Um, we looked, we were always looking ahead, and we tried to follow the clients where they were living, which made a lot of sense to, to be close to them so that they can really easily and, and readily access services. And certainly Surrey was a big move, um, and we came to Surrey, oh my goodness, I don't even know, it must be eight, nine, ten years ago. 
Um, so it, it continued to expand as the more and more people came to Canada, both refugees and immigrants, needing the various services. Uh, and we expanded because of that, following the clients. Wherever they were, we wanted to be closer to them to provide those services. And so take me sort of through what type of services you do. So if I was your client, what kind of things would I have been able to access through ISS? Everything. First of all, for, for many, many years, ISS was um, uh, the only agency that received government-assisted refugees. So those are the ones that Canada sponsors through the UNHCR. Um, and we provided the services for them. So that meant that they basically came from a refugee camp to Vancouver Airport to us. Uh, we housed them. We had a Welcome House on, on at that time at Drake Street for many years, and then the, the new Welcome Centre. But we housed them temporarily as well as looked for permanent housing for them, uh, provided language and have huge language capacity, ESL courses, uh, employment, housing, um, psychological services. When we moved into our new centre that we built, we brought in a lot of, of other agencies that could help with services. So for example, um, Vancouver Association for Survivors of Tortures, uh, we have medical clinic, uh, a whole variety of services that made, made sense for people that people needed. The big thing that you have when people come to Canada is the first thing they want obviously is housing, but the second thing they want is they want to be working. There's nobody here for a free ride. They really want to be engaged and involved in the community and they want jobs. So that was a huge thing, getting the language capacity and then helping them look for work. Those are, I, I, in my opinion, those are the two most valuable. They're all, the programs are all value, but those two make a huge difference in the lives of newcomers. And you know, you just mentioned something that, that perked up my ears. And, and maybe for listeners as well. And you talked about services for people who had undergone torture. And you know, when you're Canadian, um, especially if you're a born Canadian, like I've never lived in a refugee camp, you know, and God willing, nothing like that would ever come into my life. But it's hard to imagine for many of us the circumstances that some individuals are coming from. So, you know, um, have you followed? Any pathways or journeys? Are, do you remain in touch or do you know um, what happened to some of the clients that you've seen? I, I do some of them. A, a lot of our staff, I would say, I'm not sure the percentage, but I would guess that probably at least 70% of the staff were themselves newcomers because you need the language capacity. We did a lot of services in first language, so you need people who have those languages. Um, some of the stories that staff would share with me were just um, really heart-wrenching. And that was the staff that was who, who had come through just incredible struggles and challenges. One of the staff, I remember him telling me about escaping an area and, and uh, having to cross a river and he found an inner tube and that's how he crossed the river. Um, another staff who uh, from Syria who spent, um, who was studying to be a doctor and was vocal uh, about some of the politics 
ended up being tortured in prison, became a staff, and, and actually now did, never went back to school, but works with other survivors. Um, just so, so many stories like that. Of, and when you um, see, I mean, and I, you know, I don't want to necessarily to ruminate on things that are absolutely horrendous, but community members among us um, have survived uh, incredible odds to become Canadians and to join us here in our country. Um, And uh, we're incredibly lucky for services like ISS and others who are actually helping people to be able to overcome and cope with the trauma that they surely would have um, been dealt as a result of those experiences to become successful in the community. So what, um, you know, I really liked too what you were talking about with with the getting a job, and you know this is tremendously important. I think in a lot of um, like I'm the critic for mental health, addictions, recovery, and education, um, and we often talk about the importance of vocational training and allowing people to um, join the workforce when they're overcoming a mental health or addictions issue, as it would pertain to building someone's confidence and their sense of self worth. So what role do you think this type of vocational help and getting people associated with work plays in helping people settle? I think it's absolutely critical. I, I think every, every person, even people, you know, they come here and they're just here for a very, very short time and they're not ready to go to work, but they are so eager to go to work and they'll say, well, I'll do anything, I'll do anything, I'll sweep floors, I'll clean cupboards, I'll do whatever, but I need to be working. There's such a desire to, to uh, feel that they're contributing and I, and I think that's what it is. It's, it's not about money, it's not about earnings, it's about this feeling of I need to be contributing to to this new society that I now belong to. Um, and so there's this huge, I, I think, very admirable um, eagerness to, to find employment of, of any kind. And so many people that we see very sadly are underemployed. Um, you know, I, I, I used to, to say that we probably have the most educated staff in all of Vancouver because our own staff were people with master's degrees, with doctorate degrees, with, with I mean we had a dentist who was work from, from Bosnia who was working as a clerk. Um, just people are, want to work and want to contribute. So And then um, and it really does show too, I mean this is something that's not a new topic, but I mean it's really hard for people when they come to Canada and to British Columbia and other provinces to get accredited sometimes oh. in, in the profession that they have trained in in other countries. And it's, you know, we know even for people that were foreign trained doctors that were born in Canada that left Canada to, you know, either the States or Ireland, Australia, many other countries to try to come home to Canada to practice and to, it's very difficult. So, I mean, pile on top of that, people coming from war-torn countries or other countries where it's not easy to access even documentation. Absolutely. Um, that's really tremendously difficult. And, and that's a huge issue. The accreditation issue is a huge one, and it has been. I remember when I first started having a meeting with, uh, Paul Martin was prime minister then, and uh, having a meeting with him and there were a couple of other agencies and there was uh, BCMA and and the topic of discussion was around how do you how do you ensure 
uh, that there is accreditation for internationally trained doctors. How do, how do you make that happen? We're such a, there's such a need, constant need for doctors. Still haven't got there. 25 years later, we still haven't got the answer. And in fact, one of the things we did um, through one of our programs is we actually started an internationally trained doctors group that helped them to, to look at some of the issues, helped them to do some lobbying with the different accreditation bodies. Uh, but it's still it's still not where it needs to be. There's no question about that. And, and you know, maybe this sounds odd, but I've since getting into politics, and um, you know, I've, I'm very new at politics. But I remember starting that conversation with people and talking about foreign trained doctors, and I encountered some attitudes of racism where people also make these assumptions. And which is why I always found it important to let people sometimes know, I'm like, look, I don't know where you think people even who are foreign trained doctors are coming from. First of all, it is one of the reasons we do emphasize that foreign trained doesn't mean foreign also. It can also mean Canadian who yes. wants to come home. Yes. But you know, when you think of it in the grand scheme of medical standards and practices, there are actually foreign countries that have higher thresholds and standards of practices than yes. even Canada. And so, you know, it's really important for us to have these discussions, particularly about the medical field, and to break down some of the barriers that may actually be in place because of bias. Um, so that we can get the trained professionals that we need and examine our own biases as Canadians yes. um, and look at what, how we're viewing other countries and their training so that we make sure that we're actually um, not shooting ourselves in the foot, so to speak. Like, you know, we can't let our biases stand in the way of bringing qualified and then accrediting qualified people into the positions that we desperately need them for, especially in healthcare. Yeah, I, I agree, and, and I think it's that thing about what you said. Uh, it, it's about needing to compare apples to apples. And, and when you're looking at, at the, uh, the training, at the capacity, of course language is an issue, and, and, but that's dealt with for a lot of countries. That's already dealt with. There's, there's medically trained professionals who speak perfect English, still cannot get accredited. And a lot of them end up going to the U.S. where the And the accreditation, U.K. They I know, <laughs> they do. And we need them. We definitely we, and, need and them. And the same issue happens with nurses as well. And teachers. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We definitely need, that's something that I feel very passionate about. Yeah. I know that a lot of my colleagues uh, on both sides of the floor of the legislature also feel the same way, but it's about time that we just get down to getting yes. this work done. Yeah. So you're really obviously passionate about, um, you know, immigration and, you know, I know that you had uh, mentioned to me before we start recording about some of the work that you do with the Correction Service of Canada because you are very um, interested and, and knowledgeable, obviously, about things about diversity and uh, cultural concerns and ethnicity. So is there anything that you're particularly passionate about um, in terms of what would you like people to know about immigration? Like what's one topic about immigration or ensuring that we provide dignity and comfort to different ethnicities in our community? I, for me, I think there's two things. One is the economic reality. We need to have immigration. Um, that, there's just that, that's not even up for discussion, in my opinion. Um, we need to have that happen. And, and we have a lot of people who want to come here. They're, they have their own issues in, the, in their or, uh, country of origin, um, and they want to come here. And we, 
seem to have these roadblocks that that uh, not not just governmental roadblocks but community roadblocks racism is one of them i th i think that sadly but true um there that does impact how people can work their way through the community and and become employed in into an appropriate job uh, 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 that one that meets their qualifications. There's a whole lot of things. So I think that that's one thing, that it's an economic reality that we need to ensure that we're attracting people to this country. Um, I think the other thing is, is, is that I, for me, immigration speaks to enriching culture. I mean, I, I, one of the things about going into when I, even when I first started at ISSBC, for me it was walking into this little globe. You know, there was just people from all over the world, and what an incredible gift that is to be able to experience that. I mean, I love traveling. I've traveled around the world again and again and again. And I, I had this job where every day I had people from all over the world, and you learn so much from that. And it, it, it enriches your own life. You know, I, I think I got more out of that job than I gave because of those kinds of things. And potlucks, the best. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Absolutely. You know, I, I think that's incredible. I, you know, um, you clearly are very passionate about your work and, you know, under your leadership, um, ISS expanded tremendously. So, you know, there's probably other um, CEOs and leaders out there, you know, what kind of advice would you provide to them? I, I think two things. One is listen to your staff. Um, I, I was so lucky I had amazing staff. I mean, one of the, one of the people, just as an example, Chris Friesen, um, probably knows more, or I should say, has forgotten more about immigration than most of us will ever know. Um, but I had staff who were so competent and, and loved what they were, were doing, and that makes a huge difference. So it's really surrounding yourself with people who are knowledgeable and listening to them. You know, because you're the CEO does not make you uh, the be-all and end-all of it is, uh, I think that's one thing. And I think that the other thing is you have to be really resilient uh, and, and be able to pivot. Uh, because governments change, priorities change, populations that come to Canada change, society changes, and you have to be on top of that all the time and thinking ahead and, and thinking about all the what-ifs. What if government does this? What if government does that? What if community does this? Um, and, and you really do. You need to be able to, to pivot, roll with the punches, take the ups and the downs, and figure out how to work through them instead of sort of sitting back and complaining, because that doesn't get you anywhere. So. <laughs> no, I mean, sometimes complaining feels good, but no, it's... It's I, working through it. I think that's great advice. And so let's talk about maybe some of the challenges that you think, I know you're retired for two years now, but you, you know, you're still obviously heavily involved in community. What the challenges that are facing immigration and what 
kind of solutions you might see. Like I know attitude certainly. Um, people are worried, and, and I'm not sure if it's based necessarily on bias. You know, you talked about the potential of racism, but when people see things like our healthcare system mm-hmm. is struggling, or they were, we're in Surrey getting double-decker portables, the schools mm-hmm. are struggling, and then people and housing is yeah. so tremendously hard to get, people become almost like protectionists. Yes. They're so worried. So how do we overcome that? Because it's the chicken and the egg. We need more people living here and working to mm-hmm. to fund our economy so we can build more hospitals, but also we don't want to overwhelm the hospitals. I, I think what I see right now, the biggest issue right now is, is around housing. That's, that's a number one concern. Um, I think that the federal and the provincial government my opinion, kind of fell down um, a decade or so ago mm-hmm. um, and didn't pay enough attention to to what the future... Not enough foresight. They really didn't. They really didn't. And, and I, you know, part of me, and, and this may be a little cynical, but I, I, my experience has been at my age, politicians do tend to think in four-year chunks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's unfortunate because life doesn't work in four-year chunks. Life works long-term. Um, and so I think that there, there, there was a, the housing crisis started a, quite some time ago, and it's never been addressed. So the, I think, number one, that to me is a priority for the country, for the province, is that we absolutely have to deal with affordable housing issues. Um, I think that the, the, um, that would relieve some of the pressure that uh, is, I think is felt about immigration. And, and there's, there is kind of a disconnect right now. It doesn't make a lot of sense to continue to bring in huge numbers of of people, I know we need them, but you have to think about where do they go. There's no place for them to go, and the reality is, is you can say that well, there's you know go to Puskape or go to you know Grand Prairie or whatever. The reality is, is that the people who come here look for look at the cities. That's where they want to be living. That's just the reality. And so rather than say, oh well there are jobs out in these areas, yes there are, and some people do want to go there, but the majority come here. So let's address the issue at home. Let's yes. address it right here. And I think, you know, speaking to that too, we know that so we have a large um, a segment of the population in our city that's come from Punjabi. Yes. Or the Punjab, sorry. And so we know that they want to come and be a part of a community where they know that they are yes, familiar with absolutely. culture that some of their language needs might be able to be met, dietary needs. And so if you're from the Punjab, you're going to look for a population where you're going to be comfortable. And same goes for any, absolutely. whether you're Ukrainian or whether you're yep. German or whether yep. British, you know, often people will look for um, these little um, communities within the community. And you likely aren't going to find it in some of these smaller settlements. That's exactly and it can be intimidating, right. yes. <laughs> you know, particularly yeah. when there's a language barrier. So I think you're you've hit the nail on the head about solving these problems at home. Yeah. But we have to also solve them elsewhere. But you know, if we're going to be bringing in large quantities of people, I never want to say that we should shut the door because I don't believe that's no. the answer. I no. think we need to keep the door open and make sure that the welcome mat is, is there. But when people actually cross the threshold, that there is a place to go. 
Absolutely. And, so, and that members of our community too can feel confident when they walk into a hospital emergency room that they can get treatment. Yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's so complex, but it is sort of a chicken and the egg because we need people to come and fuel the economy with their employment and their jobs and their businesses that they start. Yeah. But we need them here before we can afford that next hospital. But we need that hospital before they can come. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's but, difficult. But I think that that kind of speaks to the whole thing about also investing in in training and upgrading and, and accreditation. Because the sooner you get somebody working, the reality is the sooner they pay taxes. And so then you have a little bit more of a pool of funding to start to do those kinds of things of of building up the community of adding more hospitals of adding more you know and and there are internationally trained nurses for example who would love and I've, I've spoken to them over the years uh, who would love to be nurse practitioners I think nurse practitioners are key to right now to our healthcare system I think we need a whole lot more of them I don't know that we're taking enough of a role and making sure that happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and putting them in places where maybe then you don't have to move from, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not picking on Pearl Puscape at all, but I think of small centers, maybe if, if those services were there, that becomes then more attractive for people to look at. I have a sister who lives in, in a Soyuz. There's, I think there's like one doctor there. And Soyuz is not a pokey little place. No. But the reality is, is that even my own doctor moved from small town to Vancouver. Three other doctors in his office, all from you know Logan Lake and Bert, I don't know, wherever, all have come to Vancouver. That's what happens. And, and it speaks to what you're talking about. You want to be with community that you're comfortable with, that you fit with um, that gives you some of that personal growth and personal satisfaction. I Where the resources are, you know, yes, in, a, in a place like our beautiful city absolutely. of Surrey, um, a newcomer to Canada is going to be able to access so many services here that, that in other communities may not exist, yeah. which also is a barrier to them moving to some of our small towns. Yes, exactly. um, And so, you know, it, it's really challenging. It and, is. you know, it's awesome to have, you know, organizations like ISS and BC doing this type of work. I mean, we I had a discussion with um, the chief librarian of Surrey Public Libraries um, because they do a lot for new comers. They do. Yes, and Absolutely. I know when you think about all the services that that are in our community to support um, newcomers, I mean, first of all, it leaves you with a tremendous sense of gratitude for the people doing this type of work, particularly, like you said, the people in your office, people who experienced that themselves, yes. came to Canada, and now they've come full circle, and they're the ones guiding, yes. guiding yes. new Canadians on their journey, right? Newcomers to our country, welcoming them and making sure that they are comfortable and have the things that they need. So, I mean, it's amazing. And speaking of amazing, we have a few minutes left. So, I mean, maybe you can tell me about what it was like to receive the Order of British Columbia. Hello. Oh, my goodness. Awesome. <laughs> So as I said, I, I um, was doing uh, volunteer work for for um, the federal government for um, Canada's volunteer awards, and what I do is I'm a regional reviewer, which means that I review nominations uh, of of people um, to receive the award, 
And I was just in the process of doing that, and I had had a conversation with the, the woman who runs the program out of Ottawa and said, you know, I like doing this kind of volunteer work. So when I saw the email, I just assumed that, you know, maybe she passed my name on and it was the same thing and I was busy and I ignored it and I thought <laughs> I'll get to it tomorrow. And then I see that there's a phone call and I'm thinking, Gee, oh, these well, people are must, pushy. Must, yeah, you know, <laughs> I better check this out. So I call her back, the woman back, and I was just absolutely stunned. Like, I literally could not talk. I just, there was just this dead silence <laughs> on the phone. She said, are you there? <laughs> wow. I was just absolutely stunned. And you know, as I said, when, when I think of something like, that um, honor. I think of people like, I, I mentioned too, David Suzuki, I'm a huge fan, and um, Rick Hansen, who I've always, always admired so much. Yeah. And those are the people I think of. And Patricia of. Warwick. And not <laughs> yes, Patricia Warwick, how amazing. So, so did you go to I Government would, House to get your... Um... Uh, it doesn't happen until November. Okay, so yeah. oh, they're dragging it out, making you wait. Yeah. It's like a kid with a Christmas present. But I got the letter and I got the... Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was just absolutely floored. And I, you know, I just, it was, it was um, such a beautiful ending to to a career like what it, it just it's a mind-boggling honor it really is I just I'm I'm still stunned well <laughs> you know what I can't think of um, anyone else that I think would be um, more appropriate to to win I mean look at you've done for I'm sure tens of thousands of people in the province to help welcome them to bring them home to Canada to bring them home to British Columbia and all that means to enrich not only our communities, but our province with all their new contributions and ideas and um, everything that they bring. So thank you so much. Is there any you know kind of final thought that you have that you want to leave your interview with? I, I just, uh, other than uh, honestly, I feel, I feel that I benefited far more from, from that experience of, of working with. ISSBC than than I gave, uh, and I and I really I'm I'm honored to have worked there. I I really feel that, and receiving this award is just um, a cap on an amazing career. Well, thank you for your service to BC. Congratulations again on your order, British Columbia. Uh, that was Patricia Warwick. Uh, recipient of the Order of British Columbia, former CEO of the Immigration Immigrant, pardon me, Immigrant Services Society of British Columbia for 24 years. And if you have something that you'd like to talk about on Outside the Chamber with me, Eleanor Sturgo, then come on, give me an email. It's eleanor.sturgo.mla at leg.bc.ca. Until then, take care.